Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Casey. Grab a cup of coffee and let's get our fix. Welcome back, addicts. This week we are getting fancy in French. Well, kind of fancy. Not too fancy because I guess it's more like criminal in French. But either way, we are drinking a classic French vanilla latte to pair with our case this week. And just a heads up, this case is set in the early 1900s and it's across the pond in France. But it's super interesting, so we still wanted to talk about it. So we don't want any hate comments for our pronunciation on this case, okay? We're giving you a fair warning. This week, we are shouting out Rivermarked, Katrina V, and Lissa M. They have liked, commented, rated, shared, reviewed, or donated. So we want to thank you guys so much. We are so grateful for the support that you guys have given us with our podcast, and we love you guys a whole bunch. For your chance to get a shout out on our next episode, please go ahead and donate like, follow, rate, review, or share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and IG, or on the World Wide Web at CrimeAddictsPodcast.com. On our website, Addicts, you'll find a spot where you can submit case recommendations, find our delicious coffee recipes, and there's also a pretty cool donate button. And if you're an Amazon shopper like myself, go ahead and click our Amazon link. It will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. Simply add your items to your cart and check out. This process will help support our show, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Eugene Weidmann was born in Frankfurt, Germany on February 5, 1908, to parents Frederick and Franziska. His father was a respectable export businessman out of Frankfurt, which is where Weidmann attended grade school. That is, until he was sent to France to live with his grandparents at the outbreak of World War I. At this time, he began stealing, but he must not have been very good at it because he ended up being sent to a juvenile detention facility, and then, in his 20s, he served prison terms for theft and burglary in both Canada and Germany, totaling five years. He was a model prisoner, a favorite with German wardens, who considered him remarkably intellectual and well-read. He speaks fluent German, English, French, and some Portuguese. While he was incarcerated, he befriended three men whom he would remain in contact with once they were released. These men were Roger Million, Fritz Frommer, and Jean Blanc. In 1973, the four made their way to Paris, France, and decided to carry out an elaborate scheme. They would work together to kidnap rich tourists visiting the area and steal their money. After all, thousands of visitors flocked to Paris for the Great International Exposition. So, what better time than that to commit crimes against tourists? In order to carry out these crimes, they rented a villa in St. Cloud, which is near Paris. Their first kidnapped attempt ended in failure because their victim struggled too hard, forcing them to let him go. In July 1937, a 22-year-old woman by the name of Jean DeCoven was visiting Paris from Brooklyn, New York. She was a professional ballet dancer and was there with her aunt, Ida Sakim. 
During the first four days of her visit, her routine was typical. Stayed in a quaint little bank hotel. She had seen the boulevards by night and had attended the Folie Bergère, which is a music hall. Admired the Louvre, a historical landmark and museum. And bought tickets for Duke's Aradine and Bluebeard, which is an opera show. But she never made it to the opera. Overly outgoing and friendly with strangers was her personal weakness and his professional stock and trade, as we are about to see. She first crossed paths with a young man by the name of Eugene Weidman at the Hotel Ambassador. Weidman presented himself with what Miss Ida Sackheim later described as the most gracious smile she ever saw. He offered to interpret for the two ladies who were with difficulty trying to locate a friend in the building. Miss DeCorvin wrote that day to an American friend, though to the aunt anyhow, he had called himself plain Bobby. Quote, I have just met a charming German of keen intelligence who calls himself Siegfried. Perhaps I am going to another Wagnerian role. Who knows? I am going to visit him tomorrow at his villa in a beautiful place near a famous mansion that Napoleon gave Josephine, end quote. In the quick 15 minutes with him before Mystic Hoven went to her new operatic role, sheer sociality prevailed. They smoked, she took pictures of him with her nice new camera, and he kindly refreshed her with a glass of milk. The next morning, Miss Stackham received a telegram stating that all was well and not to worry, but it was too late. She was already worried. In this telegram, she was referred to and addressed as Seki, S-E-C-K-Y, which convinced her right then that the criminal was Bobby she had met because Miss DeCoven always called her Seki, S-A-C-K-Y. That evening, a letter came mentioning Chicago, spelled C-H-I-K-A-G-O, gangster methods, but assuring her that the girl was safe, kidnapped, and held for ransom for $500. The Teutonic phrasing and spelling was illustrated by the Gothic-shaped J's and the triangular T's and the general Nordic slant of the handwriting. Miss Sacking went immediately to the American consulate and the police, but the constable just laughed at her face. The police pointed out that Miss Dukovan was 22 years old. She was beautiful. She had departed voluntarily with a man who the aunt described as handsome and Swiss. Her disappearance was probably a publicity scheme. The kidnapping was an American thing that didn't happen in France. And anyhow, St. Cloud was lovely in the summer for a beautiful, loving couple. Nevertheless, the police kept an official eye on the contact messages with the aunt at the kidnapper's request was running in English in the agony column of the Paris edition of the New York Herald Tribune. Quote, Jean, come back. Jean, everything ready. Why did you not answer? Jean, do you not understand your way of acting? Want proposition immediately. The police also had their eye on the two rendezvous mentioned in notes from the kidnapper. One was the Luxembourg Gardens, where the password was to be Jean, spoken three times. The other was in St. Sulpice Church, where the word was to be simply baby. Indeed, the police kept an obvious gaze fixed on those places that the kidnapper never returned up, sending instead a final angry, ungrammatical postcard. It said, quote, Remind, the last sign we have of the police and we don't send nobody to get the money, end quote. Eventually, Mr. Coven's $10 American Express checks 
began being cashed out, but were obviously forged. $240 worth of her checks had been cashed by what, judging by various cashier's descriptions, was a motley pair of men. One big and maybe Austrian, one little and French, and apparently two local women, one blonde, one dark. These four had between them one passport, Mr. Coven's. The police changed their tactics, and the DeCoven kidnapping was for the first time made public on August 7th, which was 15 days after her disappearance. The reaction was immediate and twofold. No more checks were cashed, and Jean DeCoven, once her photograph was published, was reported as being seen all over France. A sharp-eyed headwaiter in St. Cloud saw her at lunch on his terrace and flirting with a handsome French athlete and a taxi driver said that she had screamed to be taken to the American embassy, but her two gentlemen escorts had preferred he dropped them all at the Close de Lias Cafe in Montparnasse. A fortune teller saw her in a terrace by the ocean somewhere. A cruel man called Miss Sacking's hotel room five times in one afternoon to give his name and announce in a frightful voice that the girl was dead. Some crooks offered to sell clues to her whereabouts for $600, etc. On August 16th, Miss DeCoven's brother, Henry, arrived in Paris, made a torching, dignified statement that, quote, In our modest family, my sister is considered a serious-minded girl, incapable of the acts which have been insinuated, either any escapade or publicity stunts, end quote and offered the name of his father, Abraham DeCoven, a 10,000 franc reward. The brother was convinced that his sister was dead, and there were, and so were the police. Miss Sacking, the faithful aunt, was too loving to believe that Miss DeCoven had been murdered, too sensible not to know that tragedy of some sort seemed affirmed, though it could not be defined. Despairing, Miss DeCoven's aunt and brother sailed for home on September 18th. By this time, all authoritative parties involved considered Mr. Coven's case unsolved. On September 7th, a chauffeur named Joseph Coffey was found dead in a forest near Tours. A week prior, on September 1st, Mr. Coffey had been robbed of 2,500 francs, his car, and his life. He was murdered with a bullet in the nape of his neck. Mr. Kofi was driver-owner of a luxurious limousine, ordinarily stationed for hire near the opera. He had started that September day at Keynes with an old English client who spoke English perfectly. Later, a stranger saw a man who we now know was Mr. Kofi lying in the grass with a newspaper over his head and another man sitting nearby. The stranger whistled and called to the sitting man nearby, Quote, aren't you afraid you'll wake up your friend? To which the man replied, quote, no danger, he's sleeping soundly. Beneath the newspaper was Mr. Kofi's bloody face and he wasn't sleeping. He was deceased. Who was the Englishman? Eugene Weidman. A woman by the name of Jasmine Keller was in Paris responding to a help wanted ad for a Strasbourg cook and was a private nurse. On October 3rd, Miss Keller was lured into a cave with a job offer and killed at the Fountain Blue Forest by a bullet in the nape of his neck and robbed of 1,400 francs and a little diamond ring. 
On October 16th, a parked car was discovered across from the cemetery of Neuilly. In the car was the corpse of Roger LeBlond. He had been shot dead and his corpse was wrapped in a green and brown curtain marked M.B. for Mary Bravo. He was also robbed of 5,000 francs. Mr. LeBlond's latest mistress said he was a press agent and that he had gone to meet a business advertisement correspondent named Pradier about a new cinema agency. The 700 Pradier families of France were barely questioned by the police and 300 laundromats were barely consulted about the MB tag. On November 22nd, a German-Jewish young boy by the name of Fritz Frommer was robbed of 300 francs, then murdered by a bullet in the nape of his neck. His body was buried in the basement of a villa near the famous mansion which Napoleon gave to Josephine at St. Cloud. Mr. Frommer had anti-hilitarian political views and had previously been incarcerated in Sarkenberg Prison. On November 27th, only five days later, and also in St. Cloud, a house agent, Raymond Lasabre, was robbed of 5,000 francs and murdered by a shot in the nape of the neck by a client with a foreign accent to whom he was showing a three-room villa as a realtor. I wonder who that client could possibly be. It sure is a mystery. It was at this point that what began and ended as the DeCoven case entered into the peripheries of a master detective story transferred for once from the foley of fiction into grim real life. It was at this moment that an unusually intelligent and lucky criminal began to be tracked by an unusually intelligent and lucky detective. A young Inspector Primborn at the State Police of Versailles in the St. Cloud District acquired a bloody visiting card found beside Mr. Lasabre's body. The card was that of Arthur Schott, who was a traveling salesman of the Rue Park Imperial of Nice. Inspector Primborn traced Arthur Schott from Nice to Strasbourg and summoned him to Versailles only to learn that the cards had been distributed to thousands, including, among six other recipients, Arthur Schott's nephew, Mr. Frommer. Inspector Primborn's search for Mr. Coven now began by hunting Mr. Frommer, who he'd never heard of alive and didn't know he was dead. All that Mr. Frommer's meager ideal hotel in the Rue St. Sebastian knew was that Mr. Frommer had walked out on November 22nd, leaving his belongings and no explanation. The municipal registration offices for furnished rooms, for prisons, for hospitals, and for foreigners knew even less. However, the identity card on file, the detective discovered that Mr. Frommer's application listed Hugh Weber as a resident reference. It was then discovered that Mr. Weber had moved, leaving no new address. Through the neighborhood police, Inspector Primborn learned that Mr. Weber lived somewhere in Rue Veron, which was where he was able to finally locate him. Mr. Weber unfortunately spoke nearly no French. However, Inspector Primborn was able to learn that Mr. Weber was another of Mr. Frommer's uncles and was worried because he had failed to appear for their usual family Sunday dinner. He was even more concerned regarding Mr. Frommer's occasional luncheons with a fellow criminal apparently named Sauerbrie, whom Mr. Frommer had known in Sockenberg Prison. Mr. Weber thought Sauerbrie lived under the name Carer in the woods around St. Cloud. 
Inspector Primbridge knew that wherever Mr. LeBon had been murdered by the bullet in the back of his neck, it was near trees, for their leaves were on the soles of the dead man's shoes. He also knew that Mr. LeSabre had been killed by the same sort of shot and likely near trees since he had been murdered in St. Cloud. He was sure that Mr. Coven had also disappeared in St. Cloud. Without knowing where to start, Inspector Prim Inspector Primborn began talking to residents and heard tidbits of information here and there until he finally located Mr. Carer's landlady, Marie Brow. Marie complained that for all his charming smile, good manners, intelligent air, and excellent neighborhood reputation, Mr. Carer had been late with his October rent and did not end up paying it until November 29th. This was striking to Inspector Primborn because, remember, Mr. LaSabre had been robbed of 5,000 francs two days prior to Mr. Crayer paying his rent, which was already late. On October 8, 1937, Inspector Primborn and two male officers went to Mr. Carer's home, but no one was present. The inspector left to telephone Miss Brow for further details, leaving the two other officers to watch the house. Within five minutes of Inspector Primborn's departure, Siegfried slash Bobby slash Sauerbray slash Carer slash Weidman walked through his front gate playing with a neighbor's dog. The officers said they were tax collectors, and when they were politely asked to show their proof, they showed their police badges. Mr. Weidman invited them into his home and insisted they go first, but thinking about the backs of their neck... They refused, and I don't blame them. So Mr. Weidman entered first, but once he was through the door, he turned around and fired three times, wounding them both. In this day and age, the French state police officers did not carry weapons unless they chose to purchase and carry their own guns. So the two men jumped Mr. Weidman with their bare hands instead. And during the scuffle, one of them obtained a little hammer that Mr. Weidman had been using to do some small household repairs on his own. And they knocked Mr. Weidman unconscious with that hammer. By the time he came to, he was in the police station. Mr. Coffey's and Mr. Lasabri's cars had been found neatly parked and with a light covering of snow in the backyard. Police also searched the villa and found the body of Fritz Frommer in the cellar. As they searched the grounds, they noticed the front steps had recently been replaced Remember those household repairs. So when the police dug under the steps, they found the body of Jean de Coven. The next morning with a cigarette and feet heater, Mr. Weidman started on his orderly confession, saying that there was one thing he couldn't say, but he could write. So he wrote down the name Jean de Coven. For her, he then shed his only repentant tears. Quote, she was gentle and unsuspecting, he said. I enjoyed speaking English to her, which I learned in Canada. When I reached out for her throat, she went down like a doll. When she was dug up, she was still wearing her brown sports hat, her gloves, her blue dress, and its red scotch plaid top, her new patent leather shoes, her new camera containing snapshots of Mr. Weidman, and her white handbag, which had once contained $430 in American Express checks and about 300 francs, but it was emptied. Quote, I never lie he truthfully told in relating his murder of Mr. LeBlond, which, on his terms, they could hardly believe. Here's the proof, he said, and he flipped open his coat to show he was wearing Mr. LeBlond's suspenders. He had also saved Mr. LeBlond's incriminating cigarette lighter, watch, and gold pencil, Miss Keller's blonde wigs, 
and Mr. Lasabre's small shoes, which he neatly preserved on shoe trees. He was also openly helpful to the authorities, who otherwise certainly never would have been able to find the grave of Miss Keller in the Fountain Blue Forest. When her body was discovered, Miss Keller did not have her shoes on, and Mr. Weidman's photograph was by her side. He has never explained his reasoning for either of these. However, the theory of an erotic fetishism was raised or that his emotional nature was unusual because, outside of his terrible crimes, Mr. Weidman seemed so sensible. It was also determined during their investigation that Roger Million, Fritz Frommer, and Jean Blanc were Mr. Weidman's co-defendants and played their own part in their crimes. Their total earnings was 22,000 francs. It should be noted that Mr. Weidman never gave his accomplices up and initially said he committed the crimes on his own, then later admitted they existed once they had been apprehended. Mr. Million was a novice French gangster, and he killed Mr. Lasabre at Mr. Weidman's direction with what he called, quote, the shot in the back of the neck that never fails method. He earned a quarter of the money they obtained. Mr. Million's mistress, Miss Tricot, also took part in that she wore Miss Keller's imitation fur coat and wigs as a disguise when cashing Miss DeCoven's checks. Jean Blanc was from a middle-class family with a private income from a doting widowed mother. The summer prior to 1936, Mr. Blanc gave Mr. Weidman 13,000 francs, apparently just for the thrill of being in on a big crime. Both Mr. Million and Mr. Blanc had been arrested in Germany for trifling illicit Reichmar transactions, which was the currency of Germany from 1924 until 1948. This was, of course, then where they met Mr. Weidman in prison. During the court proceedings, Mr. Weidman had an interpreter from French to German, and he would claim that he had forgotten all of his French. He would also consult with his court-appointed attorneys, Henry Giroud and René Hardin, in English. And side note, um, Giroud also represented a criminal who assassinated President Dumer of France and was unable to save that defendant from the death penalty. And... The death penalty at this time was actually public guillotine, so yikes. Um, Boy lost his head, huh? I know. Rolling down the street. Uh, <laughs> so, yikes. Um, the French are still a rational-minded race, and their law courts show it. In France, there's little legal nonsense, such as pleading insanity for a man who has exceptionally high IQ. Weidman, Million, Blanc, and Tricot were tried March 1939, with Weidman and Million receiving the death sentence, while Blanc received a jail sentence of 20 months, and Tricot was acquitted. Million's sentence was later commuted to life imprisonment. Mr. Weidman's execution was scheduled for June 17, 1939. He was 31 years old. The crowd began gathering the night before at the Palais de Justice at Versailles. There were thousands of drunk, rowdy spectators who had gathered to witness the event. By 4 o'clock a.m., the unruly crowds had swelled with people there to witness the beheading. Surrounding building owners were charging outrageous fees for spectators to get a bird's eye view. The execution typically happens before dawn. However, due to the amount of people and the efforts it took to control the crowd, there was a delay, which then meant there was enough light for photographers to capture the event. Even British actor Christopher Lee 
who was 17 at the time, witnessed this event. He said he could not bring himself to watch Weidman's execution. Quote, I turned my head, but I heard. If you don't know who Christopher Lee is, real quick, look him up. I'm sure you have seen some of his movies or heard his music. He was in the James Bond movie, The Man with the Golden Gun, several Count Dracula movies, the new Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Star Wars, Alice in Wonderland, Lord of the Rings, etc. Okay, so back to 1939. The condemned man was led out with his hands tied behind his back and white shirt turned down to keep his neck clear. Mr. Weidman was placed into the guillotine. The basule did not function the right way. So they had to push Mr. Weidman forward off the basule to get his neck in the right position. Then Francis chief executioner, Jules Henry Disfornu, let the blade fall without delay. For those of you who do not know this, which I did not before this case, a basule is a board with leather straps that's tilted. Then the person would rest their stomach against the basule and be secured to it with leather straps. The basule would then be tipped forward. Think of like a seesaw. In some cases, if the person is anxious or combative, they would be secured to the basule behind a curtain so they could not see the guillotine, and then they would be rolled forward. So essentially, it's like a seesaw. And in Weidman's case, it didn't tilt forward on that seesaw like it was supposed to, so they had to push him forward so that his head was in the appropriate spot for the blade to then slice through. So that's kind of what a basule is, and give you an idea of what this might have looked like, if you can kind of imagine that. Anyway, so after Weidman had been beheaded, there were reported stories of women who had broken through the police barriers to dip their handkerchiefs in the blood. The guillotine was quickly dismantled, the pavement was quickly washed with water, and the life as they knew it resumed its course with the passage of the first tram and the reopening of the two neighboring cafes. Everything just went back to normal as if nothing happened. Authorities were so appalled at the scandalous behavior of the crowds and the illegal photographs and filming that a week later, they decreed that all further executions would be held in private and would be witnessed only by officials, including magistrates, doctors, police, and a priest. Eugene Weidman became the last person to be publicly executed in France. Guillotine executions continued until 1977, but they were conducted inside the prison walls, and the death penalty was definitively abolished in 1981 in France. I mean, they were still chopping people's heads in 1977. You think of like that in like the 1800s, you know, <laughs> but there were like cars, <laughs> and they were still chopping people's heads off. <laughs> I know it's weird to think of that because you say guillotine and think of medieval times or something. I know. It's just crazy. My thing is I'm like, there's cars driving around. Like we're sophisticated enough to do that, but we're still like cutting people's heads off. Like, I know I actually have some fun facts on that, but um, do you want to read your article first? Yes. So according to Cimetière France Adelarue, Weinman is buried at the Versailles Gonards Cemetery, and their article regarding his death and burial site, when translated to English, reads the following Weidman Eugene, 1908 to 1939, a German serial killer based in Paris, a handsome man. He lured his victims in 1937 with the help of accomplices to a villa in La Salle, St. Cloud, before murdering them. 
arrested, he was sentenced for six murders, including that of American dancer Jean DeCoven. The motive was never clearly defined. In a strong anti-German context, he was sentenced to death. His execution took place at Versailles 45 minutes late. The sun having risen, it gave rise to a very large number of pictures which were broadcast. Contrary to what one can sometimes read, this execution was not the occasion for outbursts of the crowd, but the simple publication of the photographs shocked. Soon after, public executions were banned. He was the last death row inmate to be publicly executed. Unlike Landrieu, Weidman still has a grave in the cemetery, even though it's really just a mound of dirt. It's in square D. The grave immediately to the left of that is the Renault family. That's crazy. So that's from the website of where he's buried at, huh? Yeah. Yep. I like that they're like, it's a mound of dirt. <laughs> no, I really appreciate that. And I know that that's translated from French to English, like we said, but I think it's funny because it's got to be close to that, right? It probably is like literally just a mound of dirt too. So it's like <laughs> accurate. Yeah. Somewhere along the lines of my research, I did see a picture of it and it is just that uh, mound of dirt. So I guess that's right. <laughs> Over there in square D. Wow, that's hilarious. At least we know where to find it now in the event that we ever get to go over there. Yeah, if I go to Paris or France in general, I'm not I'm not going to go visit this man. I'm just going to throw that out there right now. Oh, you don't want to put some fresh flowers on his grave and wish him well? No, I mean, I have other things I feel like I'd want to do first. <laughs> you never know, I guess. <laughs> Well, in your spare time while you're on vacation, you can make a pit stop, okay? Just don't forget. <laughs> yeah, okay. We'll take pictures of the mound of dirt. Okay, okay, okay. Enough playing around. For real, I do want to get into the history of the guillotine because, as we were just talking about it, I was looking into it to get a full effect and understanding of this case while I was doing my research. And just trying to understand what occurred that day and just kind of put myself back in that time, right? And I figured that we just had to talk about this with this case because you're right, it is in our recent history, you know, like this really did happen not that long ago, but it does seem kind of medieval and that is actually where it started. So the guillotine was heavily used during the Reign of Terror, which was from June 1793 to July 1794, with an estimated death toll range of between 15,000 and 40,000 people. Compared to many forms of capital punishment practiced to this day, the guillotine remains one of the best if we are judging based on pain and cleanliness. In fact, the guillotine was developed with the idea of creating the most humane way of executing people. Isn't that wild? I... I think I would rather not. Like, if I had my choice of how they were going to kill me, I'd be like, whatever you do, don't cut my head off. <laughs> well, and like, I don't want to get into the history of religion, but now there would be some religions out there that would believe that there would be some disturbance of the afterlife as far as their beliefs go within that religion. If the body isn't whole, which it's not when your head is cut clean off your body. So that would be a tough pill to swallow these days for some. 
I do understand, though, that there would be the associated argument that they didn't give their victims the choice of when and how they were murdered. So, you know, why should they get to choose? And that their actions and decisions to kill is what got them to even face the guillotine. So I do understand that argument as well, but I'm just throwing that out there, that that would be one problem we would have with continuing to behead people today. I definitely could see that i can see a lot of problems with beheading but yeah that's definitely one of them. <laughs> no there's no other problem just that one <laughs> if it's not against your religion then you just don't have any problems so sit down and shut the fuck up <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh but on that note the condemned don't feel pain Death is almost instantaneous, and there are very few ways for things to be botched. So, quick side note, what comes to my mind when talking about botched executions is that movie with Gerard Butler and Jamie Foxx called Law Abiding Citizen. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. It's amazing. But I'm not going to go into the whole movie or anything like that. But basically, the premises of the movie is that some men break into Gerard Butler's home, then assault and murder his wife and daughter, but he survived the assault. One of the men took a plea and was eventually released from prison, so he took justice into his own hands with that one. But one of the murderers received the death penalty by way of lethal injection. What Gerard Butler did was alter the chemicals that were injected so that the man still died, but was in agonizing pain throughout the process. And that's what I would consider a botched execution. Well, according to the system, it was successful as far as Gerard Butler was concerned, though. (laughs) But our chemical makeup is very similar, you know, to each other. Our chemical makeup is very similar, but also slightly different. So what if someone responds differently to the injected fluids than what is expected? Also, the first one is supposed to be almost like a numbing fluid, so you don't feel the rest. But how do we know that that works for sure? I mean, have they ever pulled someone out of the dead and asked, hey, did that hurt? You know, I mean, we think it works, but how can we be for sure? (laughs) And the electric chair sounds like the worst way to go. I'd rather be decapitated than shocked to death, I think. I mean, fuck that. (laughs) Bro, you good? (laughs) Yeah, and let's just see how it goes. Hopefully your heart stops. (laughs) The electric tear to me would be like, okay, we're going to light you on fire for a few minutes (laughs) and hope you go. (laughs) But it's crazy because I think of almost all of these as kind of medieval. You know what I mean? That's how they all are in my mind, except lethal injection, because that's very sophisticated. But I almost think I'd rather die by firing squad, you know, where they line up a bunch of officers with weapons and they all shoot at the same time, but only one or two have real bullets and not just blanks. So no one knows who actually had the weapon with the deadly bullets in them. But that's not bulletproof either, pun intended, because people get shot all the time and survive. So I don't know. This whole process is tricky, but it's an interesting topic to discuss. So I don't know. With that, I do have some more information actually on this topic. The head of the victim remains alive for about 10 to 13 seconds, depending on the glucose and blood levels in their brain at the time. However, the head is believed to be more than likely knocked unconscious by the force of the blow and blood loss. But again, that's just another, we believe you're knocked unconscious and we believe that's what happens, but they don't know. 
But still, 10 to 13 seconds of suffering is a lot less time than a couple of minutes. So it is, I guess, <laughs> by these facts at least, the most humane way to go about executing somebody who was convicted of murder and received capital punishment. It sounds like the best way to go based off the discussion that we're having now, but I don't know because it's not used anymore. So I guess maybe it's not. Something else I found interesting is that guillotine operators were national celebrities. Yes, you heard me correctly. National celebrities. Executioners won a great deal of notoriety during the French Revolution when they were closely judged on how quickly and precisely they could orchestrate multiple beheadings. The job was also a family business a lot of the time. This is just hilarious to me. So you acquire a machine that if operated correctly is going to tip the person forward, their head is going to fall in the exact right spot. And the only thing that you're doing is releasing the blade that drops down at a rapid rate that drops down at a rapid rate that is so sharp that it cuts somebody's head off cleanly. And because you released the blade, that makes you a celebrity. People can really become famous for just about anything. This just cracks me up. But what my question is, is what are those families doing now since we no longer have beheadings anymore? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I could go into a family business of chopping people's heads. I guess it's kind of like the mob in a way or something. Some, some sort of criminal organization. That's what it feels like to me. But <laughs> that's kind of funny that they're like, oh, baby Polly, he's going to cut people's heads off. Like... <laughs> Yeah, they better pick the right baby name that is going to be plastered across newspapers someday for being famous on being a good guillotine executioner. <laughs> pick wisely, mom and dad. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. I don't know. I wonder what some of their names were, though. That's so funny. I wonder if they, they chose names because they were born into that family. You know, like, oh, this is Earl the Third or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, right? <laughs> That's so funny. That's so funny. Oh my gosh. I think I would, I think I would want to be called Rolly if I was born into a family that like cut people's heads off. Yeah. Earl the seventh here. Still here. Executing people. Making mom and dad proud. <laughs> I think the business's name should be Chop Shop. <laughs> I've put a lot of thought into this, as you can tell. <laughs> I think so, too. <laughs> I think that's hilarious. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I could seriously be on this rampage about guillotines. Uh, for a while because I learned a lot during my research, but I just think it's so interesting because it feels like so long ago, but it wasn't. But anyway, so I only have a couple discussion questions for you today. Um, so let's jump into those. So number one, 
why did Mr. Weidman's co-defendants feel so dazed by him to the point of committing heinous crimes that they basically would have never even been capable of or even probably thought of without him? I mean, if you think about it, they were like loyal to the death. One of them even paid him to be a part of these schemes. I don't understand. Like they were quite literally in a trance around him doing anything that he wanted or told them to do as almost like they had to fit in or, you know, make him happy or something like that. Like what was up with that? Do you think? That's such a good question. I feel like maybe, see, I don't know, because I want to say maybe it's something like, oh, he's just very spontaneous and he's very charismatic and he's very like um, likable and he's very persuasive and things like that. But that means every single one of them had to be like, you know how there's like leaders and followers? I mean, every single one of them had to be a follower. Every single one of them had to have like needed some sort of void to be filled, which is where he came in. So I don't know. I don't know what it was. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that void for him was monetary, but it wasn't for all of them, considering one of them, you know, was handing out money to him. So he clearly didn't need it, you know, and he had come from money. So that was not his void. So, so we know that the void for him wasn't money, but it clearly was for Mr. Weidman. But I feel like you're right. And I don't know, I just have this feeling that he had something over them. Like maybe when they were in prison, he fought their battles or protected them or something that made them feel like they owed him. And that they had to, like, pay him back or be loyal to him. Maybe, I don't know, that he was somehow more respected in their eyes. Because they were blindly dumb. I mean, if he would have told them to walk off a cliff, they would have been like, okay, I'll go first. That's such a good point. I bet you there was something that, like, went down in prison, like, and then it's all kind of connected. So, like... Oh, I looked out for you or I gave you extra whatever, whatever. I got you this, this, and this. You owe me. You owe me. You owe me. And it's like, oh, well, my unk over here, my cousin, you know, like, and then it just kind of all got brought together. Yeah, because, I mean, why else would you do that? Yeah, it's just weird because they were all in prison on similar crimes of you know, theft and robbery. And when they got out, they thought, oh, we're scheming, got to go to Paris because we're going to commit this elaborate scheme and get all this money from people. And they had all these plans, but it was like, it kind of made no sense because they started out with kidnapping, but then it quickly escalated to murder. First of all, the first kidnapping didn't even work. Then the second kidnapping, they had already killed her by the time they started sending ransom notes. And then they didn't even receive the ransom money. So that didn't work. And then after that, it was just like, well, we're going to murder people and steal their wallets. I mean, like, could you not have just stolen their wallets and not murdered them by any chance? Their whole motive was to steal their cars and wallets. I mean, just belongings. They got nothing out of the murder. You know what I mean? Like, they didn't get off by murdering people. They didn't 
benefit from that in any way, shape, or form. They could have been pickpocketers, but instead they're like, murder. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And they said that they were going out to Paris to commit these crimes because of the tourists, but then they lived in a villa nearby. It was in a town nearby. So they could have probably gotten away with this for a lot longer had they not murdered tourists. Obviously, the police are going to start putting together that a bunch of tourists are going missing and their checks are being cashed. So I'd say for the IQ that this man reportedly had, he was not very smart when it came to this. He was at least not a good criminal. If, If nothing else, he was not a very good criminal. Considering this all started and ended within a span of only five months. So it wasn't like he was getting away with this or living a lavish lifestyle. So what was he even doing with that money? He was late paying rent. What was he even doing? So I just feel like we're missing a part of this somewhere. Either they owed him or they had a bigger plan that just didn't get to be carried out. Maybe they had goals to acquire something, purchase, you know, make a big purchase or go somewhere, travel somewhere. I don't know. I just feel like there's a piece of the puzzle that's missing. Maybe they wanted to go back to prison and they're like, what's going to send us back? I know. (laughs) Right? I don't know. Like, why else you would do that? I don't know. That's funny, though. Yeah, I mean, he sure acts like it, right? Super weird. I just, I mean, we may not ever have an answer on that. I just think it's something to definitely talk about and speculate because to me, it seems like there's something missing. And discussion question number two that I have for you is... Nature or nurture? I think I could be persuaded either way, to be totally honest with you. And I don't know if I have a stronger preference one way or another. I want to say, I I think I want to say nurture. I agree. And the reason is, is because his father, what we know of him, was that he was a respectable businessman. And we don't know too much about his mom, but I feel like if there was a criminal background on, you know, in his bloodline, that definitely would have been included and taken into consideration for not only the investigative reports and that side of things, but also in the media and what was going on at the time, you know, like the word around town and, and what was being released to the public, what was being brought up in court, all of that. If there was something there regarding his ancestry or his parents or his bloodlines or anything like that, I think for sure that would have been a part of the investigation and what would have been released to us. So the fact that we know very little to me means that there probably isn't much to stand on there. So I have to stick to the nurture side of things. Because when he was growing up, he was relocated for his safety, but to an area that he didn't know much about. And it was during a war, right in the middle of his impressionable years. So him seeing what people had to do to survive during those days was definitely an experience. And whether that actually impacted him and his family or not, in a way that they had to, you know commit any criminal acts or anything like that, like stealing and stuff. 
I mean, it may not have hit them, but it was still very much a part of his surrounding and his upbringing. That norm and that influence could have definitely altered his thought processes on, you know, right from wrong. Not to mention that he spent some time in a juvenile detention facility for these behaviors. And I mean, he may have thought that he needed to steal out of necessity or something. You know, it may not have necessarily been with ill intent, but it obviously evolved into that. And neither of those are an excuse, but I'm just trying to understand his mindset, you know? He also had a lack of stability based on the fact that he wasn't living with mom and dad, and we don't know what grandma and grandpa were like, but he didn't have mom and dad to come home to, you know, and and learn from. But it was the theme of the era, and you know what? He just sucked at it because he got caught a lot and went to prison and spent a lot of time in detention because of it. Right. And I think also like another thing to consider for nurture is like, yes, he was in prison um, and he made these friends. And while he may or may not have been like the leader of his so-called friends, he was like, you're still impressionable to them and their thoughts and actions as well. So like, yes, he may have been like the head honcho, but hanging out with people who have like the same mindset that crime is okay. That's gonna, that's gonna affect, you know, you're not just going to be like, okay, let's go sell some bread on the corner. Like you're going to be like, all right, how can we, we have a bunch of criminals here. How, how can we get some money? Like, how can we survive? You know, like, and that's how you're going to do it. That's how you're going to get things done is by committing crimes and acting, you know, and being influenced by, the people around you. And to add on to that, another thing that's sticking out in my mind now that didn't initially, but as you're talking, something I'm realizing that when I was doing my research, I kept reading over and over again that while he was incarcerated, he was doing a lot of reading and studying and working on his memoirs and all of this stuff to the point that he didn't even have time to work which meant he wasn't making any money and didn't have the ability to even go and get a haircut before he went in front of like what we would call in the United States, the parole board to try to convince them to release him early due to good behavior and that kind of stuff. So he went up there in front of them looking like a fucking ragamuffin. However, he was super smart, you know, and that behavior may have stood out to his co-defendants. So of course, somebody that is very smart with a super high IQ and, you know, probably very well spoken. Of course, when you put them in front of young, impressionable males that have nothing on the outside waiting for them that they're going to be able to accomplish in their life, you know, of course, they may kind of glean on to this other guy that they look up to, being that he's so great, and he's so smart, you know, maybe we should follow his lead. So if he's going to come up with some elaborate scheme, of course, they're going to be like, Oh, well, it must be a good idea, because he says so, you know. 
They may have even thought that he was capable of keeping them out of prison more than they were capable of keeping themselves out of prison, considering they got themselves there, you know? So they may have thought, you know, if we follow his lead, we'll probably stay out of here for a while. But obviously, that's not what happened. And who knows, maybe Mr. Weidman felt some stress with that, like some extra pressure or something, because he now has like a legit gang or like cult of people following him and depending on him. I mean... Maybe he felt some extra stress with that. Right. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if we had some more information, maybe we could jump to the nature side of things. But I think with the information we have and what we know, we've got to stick with nurture for this one. All right, addicts. Well, those are the only discussion questions that I had this week because I truly felt like All of my potential questions were kind of already answered throughout the research and the information that we were able to find and discuss throughout the episode today. But those were just the last two that I was really interested in hearing uh, Casey's thoughts. And now I want to hear your thoughts on them. So I only had two today for you. So if anybody has any other additional thoughts or questions that we should discuss, head over to our Facebook page, search for Crimatics Pod. We have these discussion questions. If you scroll down past our Amazon link, first you're going to like, follow, share, of course. But you will scroll down and you will see the discussion questions for episode 33. Number one being, why did Mr. Weidman's co-defendants feel so dazed by him to the point of committing heinous crimes they never would have been capable of without him? And number two being nature or nurture. Post in the comments, let us know what you think. And definitely don't forget to spread the word about our podcast. We are so appreciative of everybody that has already shared and followed us on this journey. We are loving every minute of it. Thank you so much, addicts. And we look forward to interacting with you all on our social media. And with that, we will wrap up this week's episode on a man who looks like he would enjoy eating sardines, drives slower than the speed limit, and never went out during the day based on his ghostly complexion. Come back next week, addicts, for another CA meeting. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and stay caffeinated. <laughs>